0: Most of you know Ryan, our son, but in case you don't, uh, Ryan Burkett uh, is our son, our oldest son, and he will be heading back to Liberty this week. Uh, This is last Sunday with us, and I'm actually driving back with him this year because it's almost 1,600 miles, it's a lot for one individual, Um, but anyhow, he's studying for pastoral ministry and still seeking the Lord as to exactly how that's going to look in the future. Uh, but just trust in God and we pray for him and ask you to pray for him as well as God continues to direct uh, in his life. So please give a warm welcome to Ryan as he brings God's word to us. There we go. Cool. Yeah, good morning. Thanks dad for that great introduction. I love you. All right. Well, as I was preparing my sermon on the way to church this morning, um, (laughs) nah, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. It was during operatory. Um, Yeah, I thought I would um, start out with a little humor because laughter, I believe, is good for the soul. Um, Actually, I heard this one, Virginia, from one of my professors. Um, There's this lady, she was out for a drive and uh, she was speeding. And uh, of course, when you speed, you get caught. So yeah, the sirens are behind her. The police pulled her over. The officer got out and said, ma'am, can I please see your driver's license? And she said, oh, I don't have that officer. He's like, why not? She was like, oh, it was revoked a few years back. He's like, okay, well, can I see the registration for your vehicle? She was like, I'm afraid I can't do that either, officer. He's like, why not? And she said, well, you see, I actually kind of stole this car and I killed the owner. The gun is in the glove compartment and the body is in the trunk. So the officer kind of slowly backs away and so tells her, you stay right there, goes back to his patrol car and calls for backup because this is a lot. So then a few more cop cars come along and they all get out and the senior officer, probably like the sergeant or chief or something, gets out, walks over to the vehicle and says, Ma'am, can you please step out of the vehicle? He has his hand on his gun, you know. And she gets out, and she's like, is there a problem, sir? And he's like, well, my officer here tells me that you do not have the registration for this vehicle that you stole it. She's like, oh, no, I have it right here. She pulls it out and hands it to him. He's like, oh, my officer told me that you didn't have the registration because you stole the vehicle and you killed the owner. Would you mind opening your trunk? sure she opens a trunk it's empty then he's like can i please see what's in the glove box she opens that up just a few papers in there and then he's like well ma'am my officer also told me you didn't have a driver's license it was revoked so she's like oh no officer i have it right here she pulls it out of her purse hands it to him She's like, okay, ma'am, I'm sorry. One of my officers told me that you didn't have your license, there was a gun in the glove compartment, you stole this car, and that you killed someone and their body was in the back. And she looks at him and says, I bet he told you I was speeding too. (laughs) I hope you don't get any ideas from that. Well, a little later, that same lady was driving down the road and she got to her destination. She was actually going to the pet store. And as she was walking into that pet store, this is where, you know, kind of like came back around at her. What goes around comes around. She's walking in the pet store and there's a parrot there. And the parrot says, Lady, you're the most ugliest woman I've ever seen. Well, she is obviously, you know, infuriated by that. She's angry. So she says, someone, get the manager. I want to speak to the manager. The manager comes out. This parrot right here just said I was the ugliest woman he's ever seen. So the manager deeply apologized, grabbed the parrot, took it in the back room, smacked it around a little bit, brought it back out, said it there, and said, once again, ma'am, I apologize for that. And then he walks away. Well, then the parrot goes, hey, lady. She turns around and goes, what? And he says, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I also hope that you know that God loves you very much. You know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, you and I. He sent his only son for us, so that we will not die, but have eternal life. So it is an amazing thing that God loves us, and humor is good. I mean, Jesus was a humorous guy. I mean, there's this one book I read called Habitudes, and in that book, it talks about Jesus, how he used humor. But see, in us, we don't really recognize that living in the 21st century as Americans, but in first century Jerusalem, when he told the parable about the mustard seed, you know, if you have faith in something as tiny as a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. That was a pretty funny statement for people back then. And also, when he talked about the wine skins, and you know, if you have a patch of clothing, you won't sew another patch on. Stuff like that was funny to people back then because, it, like, they're like, well, who, "Who would do that?" You know. So, with that being said, I titled this sermon today the "Alpha and Omega." Because God is the beginning and the end. If you'd like to, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And this is just one of several verses in the Bible that talks about God being the Alpha and the Omega, or the first and last, or the beginning and the end. So I'll give you a few more seconds to turn there. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And here's what that says it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And when I said that, that reminded me of that one song we sometimes sing in church, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So when I was like doing some research on Alpha and Omega, you may know this, but Alpha and Omega, Alpha is the first letter and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. The alphabet can be arranged in countless ways and holds and conveys knowledge. If you think about it, even as I'm standing up here speaking, I am weaving the alphabet together, putting certain combinations of letters together to convey a message to you that contains knowledge. And if you think about it, all the knowledge that has ever existed here is conveyed through the alphabet, through words and letters and punctuation, even. All right. Christ is the supreme and sovereign alphabet. He is the Alpha and Omega. Nothing is outside of his knowledge. Just as the alphabet contains all knowledge, nothing is outside the knowledge of God. So for us, we could say that God is the A and the Z, and he is everything in between. Nothing is outside of his knowledge. So there are no unknown factors that can sabotage his second coming, which is what the book of Revelation is about. It is apocalyptic, if you will, in nature. Alpha and omega, first and last, beginning, end. That, those phrases, whether it's one or more, they occur five other times in Scripture, two of those being in the book of Isaiah. And then the last part of that verse, it talks about, he says, You know, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Almighty God, or the Almighty, occurs eight other times in Revelation, underscoring that God's power is supreme over all cataclysmic events that it records. He exercises sovereign control over every person, object, and event. And there is not one molecule in the universe that is outside of that dominion. I actually got that from my John MacArthur study Bible. I really like that. I thought that was pretty cool. That he is the Almighty, just underscoring that God is sovereign in control of every single thing that has happened and will happen. So it begins with Jesus, and it will end with Jesus. God, however, is eternal with no beginning and no end. Because the thing about it, when God said, let there be light, that right there is when time began, you know, hit the you know, stopwatch whatever, that's when time began. So if God existed outside of time, then he is the beginning, and he will exist forever into the future. He has no end. Talking about the beginning, I was reminded of what scripture says in Genesis 1.1 and in John 1.1. They both start out with the same phrase, in the beginning. In Genesis, the very first words of scripture, it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And in John one, 1 it says, in the beginning was the word. Now it's interesting there that John uses the word word. Actually there, he was borrowing from Greek philosophy back in the first century. See, Greek philosophers back then, whenever they used the word word, it was like almost kind of an impersonal word that meant pure knowledge or mind or even wisdom. So when he uses, when he describes Jesus as the word, he is not only reaching out to Jews at that time, you know, who believe, yes, God made the world and everything, but also to the Greeks back then by using the word word word, because that was important to Greeks in their philosophy and how they viewed life. It's also interesting to note that when you look at the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all, how do I say this, they all have a specific audience they were aiming for. For example, Matthew painted a picture of Jesus as the Messiah, the King, and he was specifically writing to the Jews. At that time. And then there was Mark, who painted Christ as a picture of a suffering servant. He was writing to Roman slaves at that time. And then there is Luke and also John. John wrote to the world. And I thought that was really cool how Matthew is Jews. Mark, he painted Christ as a suffering servant for Romans. And then John was to the world, and Luke wrote his book to the Greeks. I thought that was pretty cool, how they all have a specific audience. So that's why whenever we encourage new believers to read, they read from John, because John was more geared towards for everyone. That was John's goal. I also thought it was interesting to note how in John one, why don't you go ahead and turn to John chapter one. We're gonna go ahead and look at this a little more. John chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 here. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know if you've ever been in a pitch black room before, but if you've had a lighter or a match or a candle or a flashlight or something like that, whenever you're in a dark room, you turn it on, it overcomes the darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. That is the nature of light. And it says here that in him was life and that life was the light of men. Jesus is the light. I also find it interesting how in Genesis chapter 1, The first thing that God created, first words he says, let there be light. Now, I was thinking about why would God say, let there be light, if he is the light? And I've come to this conclusion. I believe that Jesus, who has existed from all eternity, from the beginning, is the spiritual light. And when he said, let there be light, that was the physical light of the earth. And that is how he can convey to us that he is the light because even the lights in this room, if we were to turn the lights off right now, it'd be pretty dark in here. But Jesus is our light, he helps us to see. So I just thought that was pretty interesting about Jesus being the light and him creating the light first. And actually you can do a whole sermon series on light alone, but for now we're gonna skip a little bit ahead So God created the light in Genesis. And then let's fast forward a bit to Genesis chapter three. You're welcome to turn there if you wish. Genesis chapter three. And here, I'm I'm sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place because I have a specific goal here today. It's to show that Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, is the beginning and the end. From the very first reference in the Bible all the way to Revelation, all the way through, you see a theme Of Jesus and his work. So in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 14 through 15. Many of you are probably familiar with this verse. This is when God is doing some of the first cursing after the fall. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we want to talk about this. This is one of the first references in scripture that is referring to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. The creator of the world just mentioned a couple chapters before. And even in John, Jesus was the agent that God used to create the earth. So when it says here, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Well, that, there's that term offspring there. Well, the first part of that, first of all, let me not get ahead of myself. In verse 14, he is doing a physical curse to the serpent. You know, cursed are you above all livestock, the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the rest of the days of your life. That is the physical curse for the serpent. And then there is the spiritual curse, which is in verse 15. When he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring, Jesus actually talked about this a little bit in the New Testament. In John 8, you don't have to turn there, I will read this for you. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. See, Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees, again, are getting on his case. And Jesus is trying to communicate with them the message of the gospel of faith. In God and the Pharisees just aren't buying it they're judging Jesus and here's what Jesus says he's like criticize them you're just not listening to the Word of God it was given to you all these years ago by Moses and you've had all your life to study it and even today you still don't get it and this is what Jesus says in John eight forty four 44 to the Pharisees you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yes, in Genesis, you may remember that the devil deceived Eve. He was a liar from the beginning and he is a murderer. He is a murderer of truth and everything that is good and pure, Satan will do anything to wreck anything that way, he is a murderer. And when he says you're of your father, the devil, it's interesting that Jesus would be so you know, bold as to say that. You know? You're basically the offspring of the devil is what he told them. And these were the religious leaders in first century Israel. But it's true, and that kind of explains what God's curse here in Genesis, when he says, I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring your offspring, when he's referring to the devil, then here he says, you're of your father, the devil. Anyone who is not in Christ is uh, by default a child of the devil. Even if one claims to be in Christ, but their actions clearly are contrary to that, they are of their father, the devil, who was a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. And then there's also the offspring of the woman, which is a clear reference to Jesus. Jesus was eventually to come through the seed of Adam and Eve, all the way down, and he would be the savior of the world. And those who are in Christ are part of Christ's family. In Romans 10 and 11, it talks about Christians being grafted in. You know? And actually going back to that, Let's fast forward a little bit more in Genesis to the flood. The flood is a demonstration of God's judging and holiness and sovereignty. Because he saw the evil was great on the earth. And he said, you know what? This evil is so great on the earth, I'm going to send a whole flood to wipe it all out. I just, I can't take it anymore. And I don't know what it was like back then. I wasn't there. But scripture says that the world had grown so evil that he decided to send to Floyd. Well, that doesn't sound like the loving God that I hear about in church or on TV. Well, see, that's the thing. We, as believers, need to strike a healthy balance between the love of God and the fear of God. Because God, between the Old Testament and New Testament, hasn't changed at all. He is the same God, same system, has, has not changed. I've heard some people say that, you know, the God of the Old Testament did this, but then Jesus in the New Testament was different and he did this. No, Jesus was the exact same in the New Testament as he was in the Old, as he is today, as he was yesterday, as he will be tomorrow. He is unchanging. And you know, when I was kind of, you know, looking at Genesis and the flood there, um, it kind of reminded me, see, I like really old-time TV, you know? Um, Andy Griffith's show, I Love Lucy, Beverly Hillbillies. I love that stuff. And I, what I really like, though, is the Cosby show. Bill Cosby, you know? There was one back in, like, late 80s, 90s, somewhere around there. I have all the seasons on DVD, and I still enjoy watching them. There's this one line he says in the pilot episode, the very first one. He's talking to Theo, his son, and Theo is like, Well, you know what, Dad, I don't need to make good grades in school. I can get by on my good looks and be a model. That's basically what he told him. And Bill Cosby, he goes, Theo, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And he goes, listen, son, I brought you into this world, and I'll take you out. So, yeah, and it's true. God put us into this world. And really, if you think about it, it's not outside of his purview to take someone out. He's done it before. And there's nothing stopping him from doing it today. Yes, he is a God of love, but we should also fear him because he is holy. Then fast forward a little bit after the flood, God made a covenant with Abraham. Thou, the very first, well not the very first, but a nation under God. The very first nation under God. Now we say, you know, about America, I pledge allegiance to the flag. We are one nation under God. But the first nation under God was Israel in that covenant that God made with Abram who would later become Abraham. He said, I will multiply your descendants and I'll make out of you a great nation. And God's faithfulness continued after that with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph and Moses, and even going into the Kings and Prophets of some of the later books. I want to talk about Moses a little bit, though. God's faithfulness was with Moses when he gave the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. And the Torah, by the way, if you don't know, is basically the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It, every Jewish child in first century Israel, and some may even do it today, I don't know, but they are required to memorize the Torah or the law. Now, the Torah, if my memory serves, actually translates as instruction. The Torah was to instruct them how to live. And it's interesting to know that the law is an extension of God's character. One of my favorite examples is Deuteronomy 22.8. And this says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now that is a part of the law. So a parapet, by the way, is kind of like a lattice or a fence. So why would God tell them to build a fence around their roof? We don't do that today. Are we breaking God's law? Well, I would say no. Here's why. Back then, the roof was kind of like a lounging place for families in their homes. They would sit up there and maybe share a meal or two and have fellowship. And because they spent time on the roof, God said, hey, you better put a fence around there or something, because why? Well, it says right here uh, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. He wants us to be safe. And I know sometimes even I do this. You may have too. Whenever we go somewhere and they have safety regulations, you know, like, an amusement park, you know, don't do this or that. You know, we think, well, that's a dumb rule. Why would they say that? Well, they're concerned about our safety. However, in essence, whenever they put those safety regulations in place, they're doing exactly what this verse suggests. We need to take measures to protect each other. Why should we protect each other? Because of love. Love is the motivation of the law. That's why the law is there to show us how to love there is no law that you can find in the old testament that is not motivated by love in some way even the sacrifices that those were to be made to god as a way for his people to love him by making those sacrifices so that was an extension of god's character the law and then there are the prophets and Old Testament poets who wrote about the law and Christ. They mentioned the law in their poetry and writings as well. Micah predicted the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah 5.2. And Isaiah prophesied about the death of Christ in Isaiah fifty through 6 So they would write about the law and the coming of the Messiah. And it's interesting to note, not all prophets were just concerned about telling the future or things to come. Prophets were like God's messengers or agents. God would give them something to say and they would say it like they may say to a king, hey, you're doing something wrong. You need to fix this. You're the leader of this nation. You need to do it the way that God told us to do it when he gave the law. And that was another purpose of some of the prophets. In the New Testament, the Gospels, fast forwarding to the New Testament, the Gospels hold Jesus as the centerpiece, the promised Messiah. The apostles devoted their lives to the cause of King Jesus. You know, in Romans 5, 7, and 8, you may be familiar with Romans 5, 8, but in Romans 5, 7, Paul says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one may even dare to die. The disciples are willing to die for the cause of Christ, who is the righteous, the good person. And then the verse following that says, but, but God, but, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Paul says that rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person one might even dare to die. But even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we did nothing to deserve it. He gave it freely. There's no reason why the God, the maker, and king of the universe should have to become a person and die for us. And you know, there are things about following Jesus we need to be careful of, though. If you have notes, this is one thing I think would be good to write down. There are three pitfalls that come up when following Jesus, or rather, not really pitfalls, but distractions that can come up when following Jesus. The first of them, I would say, is materialism. And Jesus gave an example of this in Scripture, or rather, we are provided with an example of Jesus in Scripture with this. See, some people, instead of following Jesus, they follow things, you know, they chase that money, they chase that job, they chase something on this earth that is material, fame, fortune, whatever it be. But then there's the example of Jesus and the rich young ruler in the Gospels. If you'd like to read this story later, it is in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. We don't have time to read today. But this, basically this young man comes to Jesus, he's very young and wealthy. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, he calls him good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God above. You've heard the commandments. You should love your neighbor, honor your father and mother. And Jesus lifts off some of the commandments that are found in the law. And the young man says, well, these I have kept during my youth, so I should be good, right? And Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at this man with love and compassion. And he said, yes, but there's one thing you still lack. Go sell everything you have. Then come follow me. And you know what the scripture says? This young man went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus looks into our hearts. He knows exactly where we're at. Nothing in our lives is hidden from him. Just as he was able to look on this man with compassion, he says... Yes, I can tell this man wants to follow me, but there's one thing that's holding him back, and that is his wealth, his riches, material things. And he said, if you sell all this and come follow me, then I will know you're truly serious about eternal life. But this man would rather have the cheap gift of riches on earth than an even richer life in eternity. And by the way, some people would say we are called to live a life of poverty because of this. We are not called to live a life of poverty by any stretch. I know one person who kind of pushes this is Shane Claiborne, and, well, there's some other things about him we won't get into in his teachings that are not scriptural or biblical. But he, you know, lives a life of basically poverty. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Well, not necessarily. But when we make that... The centerpiece instead of Jesus, you know, living this life of, you know, like the monks did way back and some still do today. They would live in solitude and wear, you know, ragged robes and barely eat anything. And they thought they were being really spiritual, but no. They were doing that to appear spiritual, but it's superficial. Now, can a person live a life of poverty by choice and still keep Jesus as a centerpiece? Yes, I believe they can. But we need to be careful that that doesn't become the main focus. So, is there anything on this earth that is keeping, in your life, that is keeping Jesus from being at the center of your life? You know, we shouldn't remember the very first of the Ten Commandments, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is to be number one in our lives, second to none. So that's the first pitfall, materialism. The second is family. No, wait a minute. Can family really be a pitfall in following Jesus? I believe it can be. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying that we should hate our family. He's saying that if our family becomes a distraction from following Jesus, then we shouldn't bother with that. You know, there are a lot of Muslims in this country and even overseas in the Middle East who've decided to follow Jesus, and their family has totally shunned them, disowned them. And that thing is a good example of what it means today. You know, if they really, you know, if they didn't care about Jesus that much and their family more, they'd say, okay, I'll, I'll give that up. And They may leave, live their faith out in secret and say, yeah, I'll, I'll stay with the family, you know. But some of them are so willing to follow Jesus, they're willing to leave their families, their homes, maybe even their livelihood for the sake of Christ. And in that passage, in Luke 14, Jesus talks about counting the cost. We need to count the cost of following Jesus, our king. So the first is materialism, the second is family, and then the third, perhaps one of the biggest ones, is ministry. When I was thinking about, you know, ministry being a distraction from Jesus, and it's true, you know, some people come to me, you know, well, Ryan, you work with CEF, you're leading kids to Christ left and right, how can that become a distraction from Jesus? I'm telling you, it's possible. And scripture even talks about this in Matthew 17, 21 through 23. This is, honestly, this passage right here is one of the least like passages for me. I do not like this passage. It contains some of the most chilling words, I think, out of the entire Bible. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Jesus, this is Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you, depart from me, that right there. Some of the most chilling words in scripture. I believe there were people there, are like, God, was I not a pastor in one of your churches? Did I not serve in Awana in my church? Did I not pray? Did I not sit in church every Sunday? Did I not do this and this? Did I not have devotions with my family and all of this? But all of it is in vain. If you miss the real point, all that is, there's nothing wrong with all of that, of course. It's not sinful to go to church or work in Awana. But if we miss the point, it's, Jesus. It's all about Jesus and him alone. And that is it. Otherwise, he'll say, he says, I never knew you. Knowing Jesus is more important than preaching a sermon, more important than ministering to others or being involved in your church. It's knowing Jesus that counts. Because when you truly know Jesus and who he is, everything else will naturally follow after that because he works in us. And you know what, on that final day, that is the only moment in all of eternity that will really count. That is the moment we all need to prepare for. Because so often we get caught up with the things of this world. But it's that moment when he says, you know, you've maybe heard the scenario, what if you're standing before Jesus? Why should I let you into my heaven? He says, what will you say? That is the moment, the final judgment that we need to be ready for. All right, I better close here. I want to share a few final verses. This is actually one of my favorite life verses, Psalm 73, 25, and 26. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I, I'll read that first part again. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Like, what is in heaven besides Jesus? Well, yeah, there's all that stuff. Okay, picture this. I want everyone to picture this. Let's say you were to go to heaven and you were to find out that Jesus is not there. He's not there. Would you care? I can tell you for certain I would. Why? Why? Because Jesus is the light. So that's gone. Jesus is perfect love. So there's no light in love. Jesus is the truth. There's no truth. Jesus is the cure for our pain and our sin. That's not there. You know what you have when you have heaven minus Jesus? Heaven minus Jesus equals hell. That's what that is. So if you are here today and you're thinking about heaven's like I don't care if Jesus is there or not I would seriously urge you to rethink your own salvation Paul even encourages us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith it's not about the rewards or the end it's about Jesus who is the beginning and the end I was talking with my mom a couple nights ago and she shared with me an acronym LIVE live living in view of eternity I'll say that again for live living in view of eternity. Jesus himself suffered hell on our behalf. He died on the cross. God literally turned his face away. He couldn't bear to look at his own son. And like I just said, a heaven without Jesus, when Jesus was on that cross, have God literally turned his face away to not look at his own son because that sin was so gross and evil and disgusting. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered through hell for us so we didn't have to. I think I'll stop there today. I guess my final point today is Jesus always finishes what he started. He can start a work in you today for salvation. He loves you that much. He's still working on me. He's still working on all of us. But maybe he hasn't begun the work in you today. Can I have everyone stand up, please? We're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and pray and close us out. One last thing. If you have not made the decision to have a relationship with Jesus, and you may not even know what that is, and you know that God has not begun a work in you for salvation, Please come talk to me. Come talk to my dad, Pastor Roy, or anyone in this church, really, who might know. I know there are elders that may be willing to talk to you. Because nothing is more important than your salvation on that final day of judgment. Will it really count? That is a question we should all ask ourselves. Is Jesus the true reason we serve? The true reason we live? do the things we do we hope you've enjoyed today's message if you would like to know more about Bethesda Church you can check us out on the web by going to our website which is Bethesda MB.org. that's Bethesda M as in Mary B as in boy dot org or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron Have a blessed day.